This week's Great Women in Fraud is Shireen Ibadi. How did I find her? LinkedIn, of course, and from this story that was shared in my feed for being selected as one of the top 100 women in investigations by Global Investigations Review. I reached out to her immediately because of her non-attorney background and her former FBI career. This is just a great conversation about her career and how it all came together. So much to learn from. So let's get started. We are here today with Shireen Ebade. I kind of butchered it a little bit. No, but... it was perfect. Okay. I've been called much worse too. So. <laughs> and um, she is a great woman in fraud and truly a great woman investigator because I found her because of she just was one of the top 100 women investigators in the country, in the US, or in the world. It's global investigations review. So I think technically I can say in the world. <laughs> in the world. That is a huge, huge honor. And what I love about it, Shireen, is that you are not an attorney. And most of them are attorneys. So I picked you because you were the non-attorney. I am not an attorney and, and proud to not be an attorney. I'm a proud investigator. Me too. Me too. Okay. We are going to start today quickly with a speed round. And, um, and then you can give us your sort of elevator speech is someone said elevator to the top of the Eiffel Tower speech, but okay. Speed round. Let's go. Mac or PC? Mac. Oh my God. We are four for four on Macs. This is amazing. We should be buying Apple stock. Um, <laughs> who do you think embezzles better men or women? Oh, women. Oh, interesting. You said men that do it more, but women do it better. Oh my God. We are like soul sisters. Okay. Love to hear that. We're going to talk about that. And the last one, who is a famous crook or cop that you would like to have out to dinner? Oh, shoot. This is a speed round. Famous crook that I'd like, I guess. Or cop. Or cop. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Law enforcement. Pass. White, white <laughs> hat or black hat? This is a good one. Okay. No, I mean, Sherlock Holmes, does he count? Can yeah, I take him out to dinner? Does he even exist as a real human being? I mean, him. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I just had someone who said Poirot. So that's, yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Either. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. See, you did great. But now why do you say women are better than men for embezzlers? I mean, I truly believe that the ACFE doesn't believe it, but I do. So I'm probably going to run afoul of people who don't like gender generalizations um, because I'm going to make a gender generalization and caveat it as a generalization based on my anecdotal experience. Um, women, men tend to have bigger egos and I have found that that affects the way that they operate even in fraud so that the way that they do their fraud tends to be dictated often by their egos and that they think they're smarter than people. They often have sort of a God complex, especially white collar criminals have this like narcissism and God complex, whereas women generally are more nuanced. They pay more attention to details. Um, they have a lighter touch on things. And, and generally I have found women are more patient. So if a woman's going to embed, like the key to embezzling and not getting caught in case anyone's embezzling out there is um, small amounts, like undetectable fly under the radar right? Fly under the radar. And nobody should know that you have all this XX cash. Don't drive around in a fancy car. Don't pay cash for a $5 million house. Um, don't wear, you know, Rolex watches or 
carry around Gucci bags, et cetera. So I feel like women are more nuanced. They pay more attention to detail and generally they are more patient and, and don't let their egos get in the way of their end goal. Like women are able to sort of like subside that feeling better. You are, oh my God, we are just two soul sisters for that because I firmly believe in it. it's position, not gender. Um, but you know, and then I don't know if you know this is the fraud hashtag queen, um, never underestimate a woman. That's right. Um, actually, I'm okay with people underestimating me because that's generally how I got people to tell me all sorts of things because they just automatically assume that you don't understand and you must not be very smart. So let me mansplain it to you. And that is useful when you're trying to get people to talk to you. So I'm all, you can go ahead and underestimate all day long. I'm good with it. My yeah. pride is at the door. Yeah. And um, I say that a woman's not going to show up in the parking lot in a Maserati and actually, I said this at a conference, and a guy said, we have a fellow investigator who's a woman who did show up in a Maserati, but it was used. And he goes, we gave her such crap. Because got, like, <laughs> Are you embezzling? <laughs> and he goes, she wasn't. She was actually an investigator, but she got like an amazing deal on it. And so it was kind of funny. So I can't, um, but there are two women. I have Googled two women who did show up to work in Maseratis and they both stole, but they kind of stole big. That's the other thing is men steal more. Oh yeah. And in bigger chunks and faster, right? There's just less patience to it. Yeah. Generally, there are exceptions to everything. So, um, which, okay, we, we like jumped ahead, but what is your elevator story? The Eiffel Tower elevator story? Yeah, Eiffel Tower. Okay, so born and raised in Southern California by the beach, like was a total kid walking around barefoot in the sun pretty much my whole life, loved being outdoors, solar powered. Uh, went to school in San Diego, so very much continued that trend of you know waves crashing on the ocean, um, but had a passion for service. It's always been <clears throat> in my heart. And so after college, um, ended up having the opportunity to go overseas and work for some humanitarian agencies in various countries. Did that for about eight, nine years. Um, it was formative. I was in my 20s, so I, almost my entire 20s I spent outside the United States, which is very um, interesting, especially this was between call it late nineties and, um, almost late, you know, right before, I guess, 2007, somewhere around there. So a lot had changed in the world. Um, coming back to the United States was culture shock, uh, for sure. Like I didn't know what an iPod was. Um, uh, <laughs> I had never heard of the show lost, you know, which was everyone was talking about. I didn't know what survivor was like, there were all these things that I remember people talking about and I was like, what language are they speaking? Um, so came back to the U S and was sort of lost, didn't have any real, real work experience that I could put on a resume. Um, but I needed to get a job because I had $0 in my bank account. So, um, started looking around. I had a friend that was like, I'm going to join the, I'm going to go apply for the FBI. I was like, wait a minute, you can just go apply for the FBI. Like that, that's a thing. And so I did, I went and I applied and it's this very sort of long process and went through many st stages and phases and whatnot and ended up being um, offered a position in the academy class, but I had to be domiciled in the United States for three years before I could go because I'd been outside the United States for so long. I think they thought maybe I was a spy. Um, so I did, I got a job doing background investigations as a contractor for OPM, which was a great experience. Talked to bazillions of people, all walks of life about everything you can possibly imagine. Um, great training ground for the Bureau ended up going to the academy in 2009 and worked at the bureau for 10 years doing white collar, despite the fact that I had like zero experience in finance. 
um, and I came into the Bureau as a linguist. <laughs> I came in as a linguist agent and um, they put me on a white collar squad in a city where literally no one spoke the language that I spoke. So, hey, um, it all worked out. Yeah, they knew what they were doing because I felt like, you know, I, white collar was my my home. I, I loved it. I was very glad that, I, that they sent me to that. So I have no complaints. I left the Bureau um, just before the pandemic. Really good timing to leave a secure government job and jump into the private sector for the first time. Highly recommend that to people if you're looking for high risk, um, high reward. <laughs> so I did that, joined Kroll, which is a fantastic company and that I absolutely love, love, love working for. I get to do super cool, fun investigations, um, mostly corporate clients, sometimes law firms, and um, just really fun job that every day is different. Um, I get to lead and work on a team, which is rare, I think, in the, in the private sector. Um, very collaborative environment, very creative environment, um, very stimulating mentally and, and challenging. So that's what I do now. And here I am today. Did I get to and the top of the Eiffel Tower? What's that? You have a podcast. I do. I do. Early in the pandemic, we, um, a colleague of mine, we partnered with a, a firm, a PR firm that we work with professionally um, and decided to do a podcast. And we were all really fascinated by um, crisis management and crisis leadership and how information sort of drives the ability to um, manage a crisis effectively. And so we started doing that. We had our first season um, aired, I think our last episode of season one aired just this week. And then we're working on season two now. So really fun. And I will link inside the war room um, in the show notes. Awesome. Thank you for the plug. Yeah, absolutely. I love podcasts. And um, so do you have some favorite podcasts you listen to? I do. Uh, so my favorite podcast to listen to is the All In podcast, which I, people think is funny. I mean, it's very sort of aggressive. Um, they kind of get mad at each other and yell at each other, but it's informative and it's interesting and they're very intelligent and they talk about um you know, topics that are sort of compelling for our day-to-day -day and a lot of uh, market conversations, which is interesting to me. Like cryptocurrency is a fascination of mine, a little nerdy obsession um, and capital markets, right? So that's a lot of their discussion to include, you know, they talk about politics, they kind of talk about everything, but really smart guys getting together kind of abrasively um, debating things, which is my style. I like it. Do you listen to the Pivot podcast? I've never listened to that one. What's Ooh, Pivot? Kara Swisher, you know, the most powerful lesbian in tech with Scott Galloway, who is a marketing professor at NYU. And it's politics, but it's tech. And um, I think you would like it based on that. Pivot, so I'm writing that down. It's um, every Tuesday and every Friday. And it's one of those things I'm religious about. I just got back from my run and sure enough, listened to it um, on my run. So yeah, I highly recommend that one. Um, and then Swindled. And actually, uh, yes, I've heard of Swindled. I have not listened to it though. So I, of course, like the um, ones that are related to specifically like embezzlement and they did one on Rita Crumwell and I just got my notice. It's the only Patreon one I do to support. And they're actually doing the bakery, which is an embezzlement out of Texas that is crazy. And it just dropped today. So when I get off of this, I'm probably going to go listen to um, Swindled's before everyone else gets to listen to it on Sunday. So I would love it. I think he'll do a great job with the bakery because it was just crazy, insane husband and wife stealing from a fruitcake factory. So it's, yeah. And the a concerned citizen does a great, great job. Um, so I hear your sort of story and it kind of reminds me of my daughter who just graduated college and doesn't know what she wants to do. 
and but she spent time overseas and she I think she'll end up doing that so I can look at her go overseas and kind of save the world and then come back and maybe have a real career there you go yeah you got to get it out of your system young you know while you're willing to live in uncomfortable um accommodations and eat not high-end food and you know like back then I didn't care where I slept. I didn't care if I sat in the middle seat in the very back row of the plane. I didn't care if I, you know, ate top ramen every day. Now I'm a little more bougie, I guess, like in in any more creature comfort. So it wouldn't have worked so well if I'd done it in the reverse, I think. Yeah, totally agree with that. Um, Oh my gosh. What, so I'm going to say your career as an investigator, what is one thing that you wish you knew before you started becoming as an investigator special agent? like expert, like a skill or just something I knew about the job? Um, just something that you think would have helped you in your career even more so. So um, I have had to learn to be detail-oriented um, and like organized. I guess when I say detail-oriented, I more mean organized. Um, I lived in organized chaos most of my life. And part of that is just based upon being overseas and in places that aren't particularly organized. Um, so I was comfortable in that and had to really learn to be exceptionally organized and, and detailed because as you can possibly imagine, just working a case, if you're unorganized or chaotic in how you're gathering your information or storing your information or preparing your information, you are going to have problems when it comes to trial. <laughs> so I wish I had been more, um, organized and detail-oriented prior to coming to the Bureau because I had to learn that the hard way the first couple of years. And it was it was pretty brutal. I had a, a trial early on that we had a hung jury on. I mean, we had many people that pled guilty and then we went to trial with a couple of defendants and ended up getting a hung jury. And some of the reason was just a lack of detail in some of the documentation um, that hung us up. And it was devastating for me personally, but I learned a lot from that. <laughs> and now I am extraordinarily organized and detail oriented. My husband would actually say OCD. So um, that is not diagnosed, but you know. <laughs> well, you know, that's interesting because I look at my time back at Fletzy and your time at Quantico. I don't think they probably gave us a course on org. They literally should bring in someone to do that. I mean, it's a real life skill that, I mean, I remember scrambling with an assistant United States attorney and she's like, where is it? And I'm like, oh God. I know I have this. I just don't know where it is. And maybe I didn't write it down. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of think that maybe we should start a business on, you know, how to organize as a, you know, special agent. I like it. I like it. I think it could be a thing. So um, yeah. definitely could be a thing. Um, what is one common myth about your profession that you want to debunk? Um, about my current profession as a, as a consultant or my prior profession as an FBI agent? Well, I'm just going to say your profession as an investigator, as a snoop. Hmm. Let's see. What's a good myth that people have? I think one thing that I um, I used to do some some like webinars and trainings on this is that people um, assume that you can tell when someone's lying based upon micro expressions, and everyone thinks that because you're an agent that you have this superpower, which I do not possess, despite the fact I have been trained in it many times. Like I, what your eye twitched and your arm, like none of that ever, like it just didn't resonate with me at all, um, and instead. 
Like I have this theory and this is not backed by any form of study or research, but it's anecdotal is that if you allow your brain is super powerful, right. And it's used to sort of in taking massive amounts of information and data points every day in order to make decisions that you're not even conscious of. Right. And so if you make sure that you're paying attention and you, you let your sort of gut instinct tell you when things aren't fitting or making sense, whether it's a micro expression that I didn't even know they just did or something in their voice or something they said or didn't say, or something, you know, about the vibe that I'm getting that, that to me was like my internal lie detector or my instinct that I let sort of drive my interviewing, um, abilities. And I felt that that worked a lot better, but people always assume like anytime I would go talk to kids at school or do some sort of speaking people, would go, Oh, you must be able to tell when someone's lying based on their micro expressions. I was like, I got, no, I got nothing. Nope. Sorry. <laughs> Useless. No, I had my kids fooled for a really long time. And then until I didn't have them fooled. Right. Um, like, yeah. It works on little ones. I, I, I agree. Yeah. 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 Or like, I'm going to say really guilty ones that just aren't good crooks. Yeah. I mean, there are good crooks and, you know, so, um, but like the guilty ones that aren't really very good, they kind of happened into it. Their conscience gets the best of them and they assume that, you know, that they're lying. Right. That's when you just stare at people and don't say anything. And they like feel so uncomfortable. They know you can read their mind. And so they tell you. Pregnant pause. They hate it. They just hate it. It's like, oh God, what, what are they going to say next? Or are they going to pull out the handcuffs or like, so I'm just going to like vomit it out. And I've seen that where it's just like, you just sit there and it's just like, they just, they can't stop themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. They just can't stop themselves. So, um, so I pulled up one of the cases that you dealt with and this is um, all public record. So Shireen is not sharing any sort of secrets here, but um, I like this one because um, I had a friend who used to work for Gulfstream and he, uh, the former Gulfstream executive gets 11 years for a $10 million embezzlement. Can you talk about that case a little bit? I mean, I can talk about what's public for sure. It was, that was, a, I mean, fun. I hate to say fun. That sounds terrible. And they stole Probably $10 million, um, but it was an interesting case for sure. Um, and, and a fun one to work. Um, I mean, the basics of it are that uh, Marvin J. Calkin, who was the subject of that, had um, pre- prior to his time at Gulfstream, he had worked as a CFO of another company. He had embezzled from them. He had been caught. He had been charged. He had been convicted and he had done time. So he was a convicted federal felon for embezzlement, mind you, in his real name. Um, he gets out early, right? <laughs> and he needs a job. And so he applies for a job at Gulfstream. And this is back in the day when like backgrounds, I mean, they were sort of a thing, but not really a thing. And the internet's very new. This is like right after the you know millennium, early 2000s. Um, so, you know, look at it through those lens, right? It's not like they did full due diligence on people and, you know, pulled their criminal records and things like that. Anyway, he, on his application, he answers, you know, the question, do you have, you know, have you ever been convicted of crime? Have you ever been arrested? All these questions that they ask, no. But he puts his true name on, on the paperwork, right? And so he works for Gulfstream for, I want to say, 13 years um, before, yeah. before he, um, and almost always it happens like this. He went on vacation. Someone noticed some irregularities in the financial documentation. And then the ball started sort of snowballing. Um, I'm pretty sure that was not, that was two analogies put together, but you know what I mean? 
the, the sweater started unraveling, whatever, <laughs> we can pick another one. Um, so anyway, they, um, they realized they had a problem um, when someone from, I want to say it was their accounting department, Googled him because now it's, you know, 2014, 13, something like that. And someone Googles him and they find out that he has previously been convicted of embezzlement um, under the same name. And they thought, hmm, we might have a problem. And they brought in the, the bureau, um, they called us and it was a very interesting investigation. I don't know how much, how much detail you want, but I mean, the, the public record's pretty clear. Essentially, he set up a false vendor scheme um, where he had accounts that he had purview over solely because, you know, they, they were sort of discretionary accounts um, that weren't, didn't have a ton of dollar value in them, at least not for a company as big as Gulfstream. Um, and he set up a series of false vendors that were incorporated and, you know, registered and controlled by, um, you know, associates of his, most of whom he paid a, a minimal amount monthly to handle this. Um, and then he would create fake invoices and pay these false vendors and the money. He was very, very, very creative in how he got the money back to himself, because I would say most people that embezzle, um, you catch them because they go pay off their bills with the money directly. Yeah. He didn't. So the money would go from Gulfstream. It, these invoices would get paid. They would go to these th third-party entities or alleged third-party entities, vendors. And then the money, instead of coming to him, would go, for example, directly to pay a credit card bill of his that he used. But it wouldn't even go as a credit card bill. He would pay the credit card and it would sit there as a credit. And so what tipped me off to this was that we had his Amex bill and it was always had like $80,000 credit on it, like sitting in it. It was like he was using it as a bank account, which I thought was really weird. And then he would take cash advances from it. And I was like, that's not normal activity. Who does that? And so we started looking at where the payments were coming from and ultimately traced them back to some of these vendors. Um, and that's kind of how he operated. So he had um, all of his expenses in life would get paid from these quote unquote third party vendors um, directly. So it never touched an account that was his. Um, he ended up you know, he was also very good with his money. I would say a lot of criminals that I worked would go blow their money in Vegas. You know, it's like the old adage. It's like, you know, they take all the money, go blow it in Vegas. He didn't, he was like invested in, he bought a house that appreciated in value. Um, he paid off another house that appreciated in value. You know, he had uh, a lot for us to seize in the end, which was, which was nice for the, for Gulfstream. Well, and I noticed that um, he uh, actually was paying some professional escorts. Did you get to do some of those interviews? Oh yeah, actually that was, that was fun. Um, the invoices were for promotional materials, um, things like shirts and hats that were, you know, emblazoned with Gulfstream's logo, except that we learned that they didn't actually use that vendor for those types of things. And they didn't have that many events. So why was so much money going to this promotional vendor? And when we went to the person's house, we realized that she ran an escort service. So he had a lot of money on credit with her as well because he would have invoices paid to her even when he didn't have bills to pay and then he would use that credit throughout uh the month yeah. well and he's still in prison i looked him out he looked him up he's getting out in 2025 did he have a family he did he had a wife and he had uh at least one child um yeah and do you think his wife knew um you know tough to up opine on that i did speak with her um i don't I, it's hard to say. I mean, he had a job that it wouldn't be that far-fetched that he'd be able to afford the things that he was affording. Um, and, you know, when you have minimal sort of viewing visibility, like he was, he was an accountant, right? So he's handling the finances for the family and things like that. So 
I don't know, tough to opine on that and can't get into too much of the specifics of conversations that I had with her or others about that. But I don't always think it's the case that the wife knows. In, in certain circumstances, like if it doesn't make sense, your husband has a job where it doesn't make sense that he just bought a $5 million home or that he is, you know, spending $600 at dinner on a Wednesday night, right? Like those things should tip you off. You should <laughs> go, hey, do we, what kind of, how much do you make? But if you're not the one doing the taxes and the finances and your husband has a good job and, you know, I, yeah. know, I think it's feasible that you don't know. Do you know if they got divorced? Um, I, I believe that they were separated, but I don't know if they got divorced actually. I never sort of followed up with that. So I, uh, I know some women who are in the white collar wives club and I wonder if she ah. white collar wives club. It's a, it, I mean, it's a support group yeah. for women whose husbands have committed white collar crimes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, did she, because then this leads to, did she stick with him during the first time he went to prison or was this a marriage in between? I want to say they got married after oh, they got okay. married after that. And, and you know what, if let's, let's play out the scenario that you don't know, right. You don't know your husband's doing this. And then the bureau comes calling and not only does your husband go to jail and you lose the breadwinner in the family, but we also seize assets yeah. that are, you know, were either bought with proceeds of the crime or were substitution assets. And so, you know, we took the homes, we took cars we, we took the cash you know what I mean all of it was illicit proceeds but still for someone that is just sort of a called them an innocent bystander if you will um it could be pretty devastating so I don't know maybe the white color wives club is a good is a good thing to have yeah I I um in the office said I uh got a woman attorney disbarred and she was the primary breadwinner and her husband was so angry with me because they had to sell the house which she bought with the stolen proceeds and then the cars and he i just remember him at his factory job he had a factory job and you know she was a lawyer she was not a good lawyer um but uh he just he was so i remember him like marching out after me how dare you're gonna take my car and i'm like dude she like here's the check and he but, you know, I mean, I did, I felt bad for the kids. And yeah. he, he was like, I say, a factory worker who she, she paid all the bills and everything. So it was incredibly disruptive, but still, I don't know. I joke, I could embezzle from my husband all day long and he'd never he'd know. never know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he would never, ever know. Um, <laughs> so uh, what would you say, to someone young, like say my daughter, even though she will not do my career whatsoever. Like someone young who's interested, um, like you didn't major in criminal justice. And I looked, you played volleyball. Like you said, you, you know, I did my Googling too. Um, did you ever see yourself where you are today? Or, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I do talk to people. Actually, one of the things I promised I would always do is take those calls, you know, for people's kids who are wondering or people who are looking or interested because it's not, you don't have a lot of insight into the world of the FBI or whatever other agency or as an investigator, right? You don't get those insights very regularly. And so when I was a kid, I was super curious minded. Like I always had that mind where I wanted to pull on threads and if stuff didn't make sense, I was like, nah, wait a minute. You know, I was never that kid just accepted things at face value, which to my parents, you know, great, great disdain. Um, I was always asking those questions. So I think it was in me. Um, 
I wouldn't say I wasn't that kid that wanted to be an FBI agent my whole life. That wasn't like one of my things. I actually thought I would be a lawyer for a while. And then I realized I had no desire to go to law school, although I loved arguing. Um, I wanted to be a psych. I mean, I changed my major four times. I was, my parents probably thought I was never going to actually graduate, but I did graduate on time, um, despite the four major changes. And I ended up majoring in history, which everyone says is like the most useless thing to, I mean, it's great for like party conversations, um, but terrible for employment. But I don't think it mattered. Like when I remember when I took the, so phase one of the FBI is like this test that you take in this room with a bazillion people and you're just sort of a, a body in this room with a bunch of other people. There's no like personalness to it. Um, and the test isn't a knowledge test. It's more of how you think type test. And I found that my entire time at the bureau was like that. Your, your, your knowledge was useful and definitely could move cases forward, but it was your judgment, like how well you, you make decisions, especially under fire. And I don't mean literal fire um, and, and how you think, right? are you that person that can, you know, you get that little splinter in your brain and you're like, this thing doesn't make sense over here. Cause the devil's in the details with that type of work. And when you're dealing with good criminals, they're not leaving big breadcrumbs. They're leaving tiny little itty bitty ones that you hope that you're detecting. Right. So I think if you're the person that thinks that way, like you have a curious mind and you like to get to the bottom of things and you like to solve problems. And ultimately that's what you're doing all the time is solving problems. I, I do think it's a worthy um, job to look at, you know, whether like FBI or some other agency or just being an investigator in general in the private sector. Yeah. So um, throughout Great Women in Fraud, all the guests, um, male and female, because I do have great dudes in fraud, but um, uh, curiosity is the number one. And it's funny, when I got my background check done, I had worked for my dad for a, over a year. So they had to interview him normally, you know, you yeah. don't interview family members, but I worked for him. So it was a retired FBI agent who my dad used to play liars poker with in the bar every <laughs> Friday. And, and he says to me, he calls me up before cell phones, you know, this is in 1991. 192. And he's like, Oh, I told the guy you were just really snoopy. And I'm like, Dad, curious would have been a better curious. word. Snoopy. <laughs> yeah. So, and I was snoopy when things don't make sense. When someone shows up in a Maserati or a Tesla and they make 30 grand a year, and, you know, it doesn't make sense to me. And I'm curious because, like, well, maybe there is a real reason as to why they have that car or why they took that vacation. I'm just curious as to how people live. Yeah. So, it, or how people commit crime. So curiosity, it's like the number one trait of things. So again, agreed. agreed. we're like 35 for 35 for curiosity. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> um, sort of wrapping up here, like you're online, you're on LinkedIn. That's how I found you. And I'll put that in the show notes, but this is a question. Oh my God. You, did you ask this question at the end of you? Because I did USIS, you know, contract work also. The question was, what haven't I asked you that you'd like to tell me? It's my favorite question, actually. <laughs> it is yeah. my, because people are always like, what does she know? What does she know that I haven't told her? And this is the test. Um, that's a, a really good one. I guess um, why I left the bureau. I mean, that's the question that everyone asks. Well, I kind of asked that before, but I would like you to tell the audience if you want to tell the audience. Yeah, everyone is shocked because I left the bureau after just over 10 years, which most people do not do that. Most people stay 20 at least, if not more. 
Um, and people always wonder, why did you leave the Bureau? Um, for me, it was a combination of a lot of things. I think the biggest one is I felt like I wanted to take some more risks, um, sort of personally and professionally, and I wanted to learn some new things. And I wasn't convinced um, some of the things I wanted to learn, I could learn in the Bureau. Bureau, it was amazing. I have no negative feelings towards the FBI. I had a great career. Um, I was very happy there. I had a lot of fun there. I had great cases there. I had great you know, colleagues. All of that was fantastic. Um, but I knew that I wanted to just feel really challenged again. I wanted to have that feeling that I was failing. And so I had to just grind, right? Like I needed to learn new things and I needed to get better. And I was like at the bottom of the rung, you know, and I needed to climb my way up. I needed that again. I felt like if I didn't, um, didn't have that, I wasn't going to be satisfied. So I knew that was in me. I could feel it sort of brewing. And um, I thought if I stayed much longer than 10 years, I would get too comfortable and I would also get older. <laughs> and the older I got, I thought the less marketable I would be and also less malleable, like less likely to go into a completely different thing and suck at it and be comfortable with that. Um, so it was just time for me. The time was right and the company was right. When I started looking and I found Kroll, I, I knew it was just, I knew, um, and I've had no regrets since it's fantastic. There's enough similarities that I don't feel like completely like a fish out of water. Um, but there's enough differences that I'm learning every single day and I'm growing and it's exciting and interesting and I'm failing miserably, you know, on the regular, which is good for me. Um, so yeah, that, those are the main reasons why I left. Um, so <laughs> people who know me like personally, like you didn't make it into management. So it's like, you never went to law school. They didn't insert that thing in your brain. So see, we can be friends. Once it, you get into management, it's like something happens. It's kind of like, you know, the, you know, the butterfly comes out of the cocoon, but the butterfly is pretty. And in this case in management, that's really not probably the case. So. <laughs> and that is sort of the question, like a lot of agents after a certain period of time, they realize like what your upward mobility is very limited because if you become a supervisor, you stop working cases. And I got into the bureau to work cases. And I knew I didn't want to like sit at a desk and not to degrade supervisors at all. They play an amazing role. I just knew that wasn't me. That wasn't, I wasn't going to sit at a desk nine to five and be happy. So um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, up or out, you know, and out yeah. was my choice. I love that. People, like I said, I had a guy ask me yesterday, why did you leave customs after five years? And I was like, my husband got a job in the middle of the country with no border. But, <laughs> you know, and I was pregnant, wasn't going to leave him for to stay with customs. So, um, and, and this is just kind of a fun, frivolous question. Is there anything you're binging on like Netflix, HBO right now that you think the audience would enjoy? We, so I'm not normally a TV watcher, but the pandemic has made me into a TV watcher, which maybe a lot of people are feeling the same way. Um, so we um, binged a few things. I feel like people are going to judge me though. That's okay. We like the dark, um, you know, a little bit of the dark side of things. So prodigal son, um, it's dark, but it's psychologically very interesting. Um, so we didn't watch that. And in fact, are so sad that we just finished season two and now we have to wait for them to create like a whole new season, which is devastating. Um, and then a couple other ones, City on a Hill, which I normally don't watch FBI shows, but that one's like FBI, Boston PD, you know, Boston DA's office. Very interesting. Those are the two that we watch the most. And there's a few others, but those are the two we like anticipate. Um, they're both very dark though. So please don't judge me. I'm actually a happy person. <laughs> um, have you watched The Startup? No, huh? What's the startup? Okay. So the startup, it's about 
cryptocurrency. It's in Miami. And um, it was on Crackle, which was, yeah. I don't even know. What I don't have Crackle. Yeah. Well, but now it's on like Netflix or HBO. And it's interesting because you've got, you've got the white dude who, you know, he works in a bank and then you've got the really super, super smart Cuban girl who went to Stanford, who's just, and then you've got, you've got the gangbanger who's, and, and they're creating this cryptocurrency and I'm not done with season one yet, but like we're kind of on the edge. So you might want to check it out. Yeah. And like I said, crypto is my nerdy obsession. So I'm going to, I'm going to try that one. Netflix, yeah. you said, right? Uh, yeah. Net, I'm pretty or, sure it's Prime or something. Yeah. Hmm. I'm pretty sure it's uh, Netflix. So yeah, it's just, it, and it's Miami. So, but it's better than Miami Vice. So. <laughs> Miami though. I mean, I think we watched like a documentary on like money laundering Miami in the eighties and it was so fascinating. You're like, yeah, 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 absolutely. So, um, Shereen, I can't thank you enough because like, I know people are going to listen to this show and um, whether they're in law enforcement, have been in law enforcement, they're going to see that your career trajectory is working. So I just, it, it's very, very inspiring. Um, and I did work briefly for Kroll, but as a contractor, you know, top notch, top drawer firm, and you ended up at the right place. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you reaching out. This has been fun and, and we should definitely keep in touch. We have far too many common interests. I know. We definitely hey, LinkedIn's good for something. Yeah. I love LinkedIn. LinkedIn is like my jam. So <laughs> thank you. And we will have you back because um, we'll just have you back for sure. Awesome. Okay. Such a pleasure meeting you, Kelly. Thank you. Thanks. Wasn't Shireen great? Of course she was. If you are on a Great Women in Fraud podcast, you are part of the club for sure. I loved how she used her time having to be domiciled in the U.S. to do background checks for OPM. She became so versed in interviews, the FBI was kind of shocked. Duh. Of course. As a background investigator, you talk with all sorts of people from all over. It's truly fascinating. Next week's guest is Rochelle Davis. Reach out to her on LinkedIn or her other social media. Her work is so unique and I would say life-changing on many different levels. I can't imagine some of the phone calls that she makes. Have a wonderful rest of your day and talk to you next week.